As mentioned earlier, we are delighted for the presence of each and every person today, our membership, our visitors alike, that each of us have approached with the attitude, the mentality, the desire to assemble in honor and to worship the great God of heaven. It's truly a marvelous thing that we can, of course, do that in the freedom of this land and understand what a great blessing indeed that truly is. Certainly, as you appreciate the message, at least the the reading of verses 1 to 6 of Ephesians 4, I hope you have your Bible still open to that location. We'll be devoting the entirety of our lesson today to various consequences and observations about that wonderful set of verses. As you do that, the lesson title that I have chosen is the unity of the Spirit, and that was the very wording of verse number 3. The next statement, the introductory slide, will be one that motivates us from, for some of the conclusions that we will shortly consider in our lesson today. You know, the book of Ephesians divides in a very powerful way right after the third chapter. And I say that for the following reason. You'll note that the first three chapters of that book in a beautiful way, highlight an essence of unity. But it provides the basis upon which that unity is to be considered. It is the basis of doctrine. A uniformity, for instance, in Ephesians 2.8, in which we read, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of the gift, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. But later in that same chapter, highlighting the beauty and the amazing sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. We notice in verses 17 and following, wherein that element is so wonderfully described. As we come to chapter 3, the mystery is under discussion, but you'll notice that's not some foreign concept of something difficult and hard to appreciate. It's now been revealed, verses 3 and 4, and that revelation brings us to notice the closing verse of the chapter. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. But you and I quickly notice the last three chapters of the book still in many ways focus upon the marvel of unity, but it's the practical aspect now. That is to say, based on that doctrinal observation, how do we be united? What are the features of it? What are its aspects? You'll notice on that slide, May I say it's a thrilling subject. It's a subject that is so full of marvel and wonder. It is with that in mind, why don't we then come to chapter number 4, verses 1 through 6. This was read just a moment ago in our hearing. It begins like this. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you are worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And at that point, a few observations, perhaps matters that will assist us in light of the listing that's just been put before us. The opening three verses begin like this. First of all, Paul rather quickly says, He himself a prisoner of the Lord. Notice it was a voluntary imprisonment. Everyone who is in service to the Master does so voluntarily. God doesn't force anybody to serve Him. He doesn't conscript anyone into the kingdom. 
we voluntarily choose to be submissive to His will. And so as Paul makes that statement, he now highlights this amazing affirmation. He enjoins those Ephesians, what worthy of the vocation to which you have been called. May I suggest that each one of us would do well to keep in mind God has set the bar for Christianity very high. It isn't a low thing. Notice Paul urges them, you walk worthy, that high standard that's been set before you. Quite often those in the world would encourage and even insist that the bar is not very high. But the Bible doesn't notice anything about that. In Philippians 3.14, there, isn't it true, we're reminded... Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's a high calling in in essence. That's what's reminded of us here. But verse number 2 then begins a brief listing. With all lowliness. And on the slide you may notice, I've asked you to consider a few statements near the bottom of it. Statements that involve the elements of this list. What is lowliness? The original word in the original language suggests the idea of humility. It is true, isn't it, that the Lord Jesus demands of us as His followers that like He, that we motivate ourselves in an attitude of humility. But in addition to that, there is meekness. At least that's the word the King James translation utilizes. The word literally carries the thought behind it of gentleness. It is a sweet attribute, isn't it? To appreciate someone who chooses to dwell, who chooses to conduct him or herself, not only in an attitude following humility, but also gentleness. Let's go on to the next statement, however. It says, forbearing one another in love. The word forbear literally means it carries the essence of endurance. A stick if you please, and not giving up, if you will. No wonder in light of all of that. One more thing to notice pretty quickly, this essence of long-suffering. It's likely the case. That's not a word we use in English nearly as much as was once the case. But to be long-suffering is to suffer long. It is to endure with patience. How often the Word of God encourages us to be individuals who also have these attributes. But may I say, there are two more to come. It does say, doesn't it, in verse number 2, forbearing one another in love. Love is in many ways a masterpiece I've defined this way. That means of conduct in which one acts in the best interest of another. Genuinely, not hypocritically not with any self-advantage in mind, but literally to behave in such a way that is in the best interest of that which is its object. That kind of love is so often discussed in the New Testament, and Jesus, of course, had so much to say about it. One final thing. Verse number 3 says, "...endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit." Might you and I observe then that unity as it exists is not the brainchild of the human family. It is not merely the goal or desire of you or me. This says it belongs to the Spirit. Unity is such that it's promoted by the Holy Spirit. 
It is taught by the Holy Spirit. It is encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when that unity exists, it's not merely our effort. It is merely putting into practice into that which is the reality of what the Spirit has already taught us. Don't we read in Psalm 133, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Wouldn't it be fair to note then that both Old and New Testament have much to say about unity? But that does bring us to verse number 4. The rest of our lesson will be devoted to the additional listings that Paul puts before us here. It is not possible, it seems to me, to easily pass by the meaning and the significance of what is here before us. After highlighting the unity of the Spirit, after suggesting that it, of course, is such that it exists in the bond of peace, Paul now says there is one body. Every one of us know that in terms of all the numbers imaginable, the number one is unique in that it conveys a sense of perfect uniqueness. If there's only one of something, it is absolutely and perfectly unique. There's not even a replica. There's not even another. And after mentioning the word unity, he now says there is one body. Why don't we devote a few moments and think about the elements of this listing. The statement that the Holy Spirit through Paul made. I've listed for you at least a few comments. What is meant by one body? May I suggest that in terms of biology, that's not hard to understand. The normal course of matters is for there to be a head for one body. But in addition, to consider that there is one body for one head. But may we never forget, Paul isn't giving a dissertation on biology. He rather is asserting a rather powerful spiritual truth, isn't he? If we are left of any wonderment, just turn back three chapters. Ephesians chapter 1 gives us a powerful defining observation. Verses 22 and 23 of this same book, chapter 1 says, "...and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all." Now there, the word body is clearly used in such a way that it identifies the body of Christ, the blessed kingdom of the Lord. You and I would simply recognize it by the wording presented as the church. It is said there the church is His body. Not shockingly then here in chapter 4, we are told there's one body. One body of Christ, one church. In light of the unity and the oneness of that, let's reflect upon the Master's statement Himself. Wasn't it true that in Matthew 16, Jesus preaching in the area of Caesarea Philippi, He had a dramatic question to ask of His apostles. He said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Matthew 16, verses 13 and following. And there, of course, we remember there were many who said, Some say you're Elijah, some Jeremiah, some one of the prophets. But Jesus, in a very dramatic and personal way, said, who do you say I am? And now, the onus, if you please, was on the apostles. The Lord asked them personally, Who do you say I am? Peter, as was often true, was a bit bold and somewhat aggressive on occasion, and he rather quickly said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In reply, Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Would you reconsider with me the words of the Master? He said, I will build my church. That word is singular both in Greek and in English. He promised to build exactly and only one church. Now that certainly is a very thought-provoking and profound matter, isn't it? The Master promised that He'd build one. Look at the next item on the slide. As you and I look then after the fact, and we look at Colossians 1.18, might we ask, over how many bodies does He rule His head? Paul, by inspiration, wrote the following words. And He is the head of the body, the church, again, which identifies as His body. Isn't it true in that statement? It is stated that it is the Lord that has the preeminence in all things. But there again, head over the church. May I invite you to consider one final thing. His blood purchased how many? We're taught very clearly that, of course, it was the precious blood of Christ that purchased the church. And to those elders of the church in Ephesus, the same church to which this epistle was written, it was said to them in Acts 20, 28, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He has purchased with His own blood. The church was purchased with that amazing blood of Christ. At this point then, as we revisit our, the passage before us, there's one body, meaning there's one church. At the bottom of the slide then, an obvious set of consequences. The Bible knows absolutely nothing about the concept that at least sometimes we encounter in our modern society. Choose the church of your choice. Well, the Lord only built one. He only purchased one. And Paul wrote, there is only one. It thus would behoove us always to appreciate very strongly and to appreciate very carefully. Wouldn't it be fair to say, I want to be a member of the one He built. I'm not interested in being a member of anything else, no matter how noble it otherwise might be. I want to be a member of the one the Master built. Nothing else will satisfy. What else did Paul say? Not only is there one body, that listing, the same verse, verse 4, goes on to say this. There is one Spirit. Let's pause a moment, reflect on the majesty of that statement. One Spirit? You'll notice at the top of that slide how often it is reminded of us that the Holy Spirit, in such a dramatic way, is a member of the Godhead. In Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, you may recall there that Ananias and Sapphira had made their very poor choice. But you'll notice after that that they were particularly told, you've lied to the Holy Ghost. But then the next verse says, you lied to God. Meaning, of course, that the Holy Spirit is God. Just as we appreciate then the Holy Spirit and the greatness of Him. And notice, the Holy Spirit's not just a force, not just an influence, not just something better felt than told. The Holy Spirit, in a dramatic way, Jesus referred to Him as a Him. 
It's a divine entity, a personality, if you please. Isn't it true that Jesus said in John 16, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, speaking to those apostles. The Holy Spirit then, you and I should appreciate a divine entity, a being, a personality, in the same way that God is, in the same way the Son is. Look at the next point with me. This Holy Spirit has then done a marvelous job at revealing to the human family the mind and the will of God. In fact, that was the primary chore that the Holy Spirit has in fact delivered to each and every one of us. Could I ask you to notice Ephesians 3 verse 5, previous chapter, the one we're studying this morning. Verse 5 says, "...which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, but as it is now revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." Did you note the word by? The agency of the Spirit was such that the Spirit revealed these things to the holy apostles and prophets. I'd call to our attention that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 14, if I may paraphrase, says you don't know what's in the mind of a man unless he tells you. We don't have the capability of reading the mind of others. In the very same way, the Apostle Paul there wrote, it's the Spirit that's revealed to us the mind of God. And aren't we thankful for that revelation? It is in that light, though, that here Paul says there is one Spirit. May we never then be deceived to think then that the Spirit's contradictory and perhaps there's more than one because there isn't. About the middle of that slide, aren't we challenged then to reflect on the Word of God in this connection? 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21 read like this, "...knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation." For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moved those individuals to write the inspired words of Scripture. And with that provision of the Spirit, we then appreciate the unity and oneness of Him. One last statement then would be this one. The Spirit, inasmuch as He is the Spirit of truth doesn't contradict himself, and he never opposes himself. Look at the third point. What else then is in Paul's famous listing? One body and one spirit, even as you're called, in one hope of your calling. At the bottom of this slide, what is this one hope to which Paul draws our attention? The wording of verse number 4 is as direct and as powerful. As ye are called in one hope of your calling... To reflect upon this, wouldn't it be fair to say that God has been so good to us? The Bible so overwhelmingly identifies that daily He loads us with benefits, Psalm 68, 19. And not only that, everything from the rain we enjoy to the attributes of the food that we also have, Acts 14, 17. All of it is due to the beneficent hand of God. I'm reminded of James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. But may I say that that is not the one hope to which Paul refers in this listing. You can already see what apparently the critical idea is. 
that one hope to which every Christian turns his or her attention. That one hope that is the overguiding and overwhelming matter is heaven. The desire to go to heaven and to be there for all eternity sometime. I say it that way because look at Colossians 1 verse 5. Look at how that's worded. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. The hope laid up for you in heaven. Although these other blessings of God are great and we're so thankful for them, there is something that rests beyond the matter of this material world. For we know that the time will come that we shall pass away. We understand that our existence in this flesh is not permanent. But we know what comes after. There's going to be a time of judgment. And following that, the grandeur of heaven for those prepared. Paul said here, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Maybe there's a greater description of that given in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, there's the word, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and reserved in heaven that fadeth not away. There's the hope to which we turn our attention. Isn't it true that in light of that, there is one hope? I've chosen the following statement on the slide then to be this. Ultimately, success is attached to the accomplishment of that hope. If you or I live this life, no matter what else may be said of us, if I miss heaven, I have not been successful. I have not been successful. But also, no matter what else may be said, I may have lived in poverty. I may have lived in pain. I may have lived bereft of many of the blessings this world has to offer. But if I leave this place and go to heaven, it's been a life of successfulness. It's been a life connected to the things most important. Paul said there is one hope. What's in the next verse? What else is in this inspired listing of unity? There's one Lord. Verse number 5 brings us to note a rather quick observation of three things. He says there is one Lord, there is one faith, and there is one baptism. Let's discuss one Lord for just a moment. We have no question as to who this is. We've already noted there's one Spirit. And now we have this statement, there is one Lord, and in connection to verses like these... I would call to your attention, Acts 10, verse 36. Speaking of Jesus, Peter said, He is Lord of all. Peter was under the impression that Jesus the Christ was the Lord. Now, may you and I remember that today, of course, the word Lord isn't an oft-occurring word in our language. That was used, of course, in a time when you appreciated servants or slaves in connection to those who had the mastery or those who had the ownership. May we understand as Christians, Jesus is our Lord. We are supposed to submit entirely, fully, and thoroughly to His will in every way. He is our Master. No wonder the Bible would say on many occasions, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation Chapter 17, stated again in Revelation 19. 
may I call to your attention that text in 1 Timothy 6.15. The blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. I hope that each of us appreciate being able to serve a Lord that's that loving, a Lord that's that kind, a Lord that is that compassionate. Surely as He is indeed the Lord. Look at those other verses from the very lips of Jesus Himself. Didn't He say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. Didn't Peter say it like this in Acts 4, 12? Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The uniqueness of the Lord. May I again remind us, we're discussing unity, and Jesus said, there's no other way to heaven than through me. How exclusive, how unique. Perhaps it's fair to add this to that statement. As you and I contemplate then the Master and the uniqueness attached to Him as Lord, that seems such an easy matter to contemplate. There is one Lord in the same way there's one body. In the same way there's one hope. In the same way, there's one Spirit. If the word one means a certain thing with respect to any of them, it means that with respect to all of them. Now, so far, those matters have been so easy to appreciate. Look at the next one. One faith. May I suggest the human family struggles much more with this one. No one seems to question there's one Lord. Everyone would agree. Jesus Christ is the Lord, and there is no other. Everyone would agree there is one Holy Spirit, and there is no other. But suddenly, many are willing to then perhaps admit, well, maybe there's a lot of faiths. Maybe there is an acceptable arrangement, an assortment, perhaps numbering into the thousands of faiths. May I say that isn't consistent with the Word of God. There is one faith. Let's develop a few thoughts connected to it. In this inspired listing, it was Paul, it was the Holy Spirit through Paul who made this assertion. And the next point, could I draw to your attention, Jude verse 3, the second to the last book in the New Testament. There, as the word faith is presented, it is presented in the following very unique and yet very interesting way. Jude is a one-chapter book in verse number 3 simply puts it like this. As Jude himself asserted, he said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. It would do us well to notice that as the word faith is described in that connection, we're very clearly told it was that faith that was once delivered to the saints. And the Greek verb is very strong. It highlights it was once for all time delivered to the saints. No continuing revelations. No appendices, if you please. It was delivered one time to those saints of old. And thus it leads us to notice this one faith has been unaltered now since it was revealed. Could we observe that anything that's new cannot possibly be the faith? But anything, of course, that is new, as it would fall outside that description, isn't it fair to say that what's true isn't new, 
and what's new isn't true. As you and I embed that thinking in our heart, Paul said there is one faith. That was a timely message for those in Ephesus those centuries ago, but nothing has been changed about its truth today. Look at what's next on the slide for our consideration. The description of this faith is even highly called to this point. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and look at the description that's there given in the connection to this faith. Perhaps a little background might be in order. The church in Corinth was struggling in a number of ways, but one of the things that was causing some issue among that congregation was a matter of divisions. There were some who were saying, I am of Cephas, and others, I am of Paul, and others, I am of Apollos. In fact, would you notice particularly verse 12 of this chapter? Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. There had arisen various considerations in which there were individuals who were joining allegiances to Peter or to Apollos or to Paul. The next verse overwhelmingly invited their attention to this. Verse 13, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? These associations to men were wrong then and they still are. No man, be it Calvin, be it Luther, be it Wesley, be it anybody else, they didn't die for us. We aren't baptized in their name. It's only the Christ who went to the cross for us. It is only the Christ then who purchased an organization in which we're to be a part. There is one faith. No amount of sophistry of men, no amount of consideration will ever change the Word of God's assertion on that point. There is but one. At that point, it leads us to note this. The Bible knows absolutely nothing of the concept of choose the faith you like. Choose your own faith, the one that's your preference. If there's only one, it behooves us to appreciate the one, to live in harmony with the one. And it's the one predicated, of course, upon that which was revealed roughly 20 centuries ago. The beauty of one faith, the consideration of it certainly causes us great challenge, doesn't it? Quite often, individuals may well ask, of what faith are you? And maybe you and I, as we contemplate, what's the right way to answer? Because there's only one. It's not as if I can choose one among many. Jesus has only one. This one faith highlighted in the reading before us does bring us to another element in the listing. Because you'll notice that verse, verse number 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, leads us now to note the following description of that one faith. I mentioned a moment ago that church in Corinth was struggling a bit with divisions. Verse number 10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The unity that Paul admonished upon the church at Corinth was to be a unity predicated upon a oneness in judgment. They were to speak the same thing. They were to, in fact, set forth a unity, a oneness in light of religion in its entirety. 
the religious world of today fails miserably in light of a verse like that one. Religious organizations teach a variety of things, and often they're mutually exclusive. This one says you don't have to be baptized to be saved. This one says you do. This one says there's miracles today. This one says there's not. The Word of God says God intended there to be a unity on one faith, and all who submit to the Master will adhere to that one faith. Isn't that a beautiful thought, though, of the power that will be resident in a group of people bound together with a unity described like this? Let's look at another element. The thing that Jesus prayed for. The thing the Master prayed for. It never ceases to be remarkable. The night before they crucified Him. May I say that all of us under the load of that kind of pressure the thing that we would pray for would be the most important thing to us. What did Jesus pray for the night before they killed Him? Would you turn back to John 17? Let's read about it. As the Apostle John recorded it, this is what the Master prayed for. We'll not read all of chapter 17 of the book of John, but we'll cast a spotlight on verses 20 and 21. Neither pray I for these alone, but... For them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Those were nearly the last words spoken by Jesus before they killed him. He prayed that all that would believe on him would be united as one, as thoroughly and as completely as He was united with His heavenly Father. The human family has failed so miserably to maintain, to sustain, and to move forward the reality of that kind of unity. But we could, if everyone would simply go back to the Bible, set aside all human creeds, human opinions, human ideas, and count them as nothing, and go back to what saith the Word... Follow it and it alone. Everybody could be united. Because it isn't our opinion. It is the one faith that's been delivered from ages past. Let's go back to our listing in Ephesians 4. There's one baptism. That's what Paul said. And yet today still one can oftentimes hear discussion. Some preach about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Others baptism in water. Others baptism in fire. Paul forevermore said there is one. One that should capture our attention in light of the circumstances at the moment. What is the one baptism? You'll notice on the slide, there's certainly much discussion about connection to the Holy Spirit. Perhaps that's for a different sermon or a different occasion. The Bible does talk much about that admittedly. But Paul here said there's one. I wonder what this one is that would be so needful for you and I today. In light of that one hope we mentioned earlier. In light of that one church. Could we pause and ask this? Which baptism admits one into the church? Look at 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse number 13. As Paul wrote to that church in Corinth, this statement thus easily appearing says... For by one Spirit 
Are we all baptized into one body? Now, the one body we've already identified is the church. And you'll notice the one spirit is identified, and on that occasion we notice it's by the one baptism. Whatever the baptism is, it is that which is the thoroughfare of entrance into the church. Thankfully, the book of Acts details it in marvelous splendor. On the day of Pentecost, what were they told? Remember, they were shortly to enter into the church, but what did they do? Verse number 38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And three verses later, then they that gladly received His word were baptized. And then verse 47, The Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. May I suggest the one baptism is identified in language like this. It's the very one the Master spoke of in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. That one baptism that, of course, provides the blessing of salvation, that burial in water for the remission of sins. How sweet it is to hear Paul revisited here and highlighted in such marvelous character. The baptism spoken of leads us to close that slide borrowing the words of Paul in Galatians 3. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Oh, the wonder that we've looked at so far through the elements of this list. But of course, only one remains. Verse number 6. There is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Isn't it amazing to note again how that we have no trouble, no difficulty interpreting the fact there's one God. And yet that's what Paul highlights here. But the word one in connection to God is the same word in connection to faith, in connection to the church, in connection to hope. Just a few comments about this one are perhaps in order. As far back as Isaiah 46, 9, God Himself had said, There is none else. I am God from everlasting to everlasting. Although it's true that men throughout the ages have thought to offer competition to God, they've worshipped the sun and the moon and mountains and rocks and rivers, but isn't it still true? And you and I know it well. Those are things the Creator created. There is but one God. And yet the Bible calls us to appreciate Him as the sovereign ruler of all things. And you and I are admonished to appreciate that rulership and to fear Him. Ecclesiastes 12 says, The whole duty of man is this, Fear God and keep His commandments. The lesson as it's now yours this morning, all that's left is a statement of conclusion. We've looked in some detail at the unity of the Spirit, I saved one word to last. We're told in that passage we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. That word endeavor in the original language means with great diligence, with great effort if required. May I say, it won't always be easy to maintain the nature of this unity, but may we always strive not only to live it, but to encourage it in the world in which we live noting that it's the very thing for which Jesus prayed. 
I pray that all them that believe on me may be one. Today, as we reach the close of our lesson, we've used Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 6, and the unity of the Spirit is our point of discussion. It could be there's someone in the audience that's never become a Christian. You have never been buried in baptism for the remission of sins. We'd like you to know we'd like to help. You must believe in Jesus with all of your heart, repent of your sins, confess His name, and then, as a candidate for baptism, we'll bury you in water for the remission of your sins. If we could help doing that today, it'd be our joy. If you have become a Christian at some former time but haven't been faithful, maybe you have stepped away from the faith. Come back to that first love today. As you make confession of those errors and repent of them, God has promised to forgive. If we could be of assistance in any of these ways, we invite you to come even now while together we stand and while we sing.